0: All right, well, hey, good morning. It's great to see you guys here uh, today. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here. It's going to be back starting 2024, jumping back into Mark uh, this morning. Welcome to you guys who are joining online. Um, you know, if the cold kept you home, we're glad that you guys are joining us too. So, um, hey, before we jo- uh, jump into, dive into uh, Mark as we get back into this, uh, I want to give you guys a quick update. Um, I'm hoping that you guys are anxious to hear this. So with two weeks to go uh, before the end of the year in 2023, we sent out an email with a letter that said, hey, here's kind of our end of year finances. This is where we're at. This is what we need uh, in order to kind of come in flat or to break our, our uh, giving and our, our expenses. And so that number was $150,000 roughly, kind of right in that mark. It's not atypical for us as we kind of hit end of year swoosh. I am happy to tell you this morning that over $200,000 came in. Yeah. That's awesome. In 2 weeks. That's crazy. So we're about $55,000 ahead of where we Uh, expected to be. And so that puts us in a great space to move forward. So um, obviously celebrate and praise to God, but thank you to each of you. So um, this is really, it's a really good spot. So we're excited. So jumping back into 2024, obviously new year, if you picked up one of these, um, it says part two on the bottom. Maybe you got that this morning. If you use this this morning, you will be confused. Okay. So, um, and the reason being is because we start this next week, uh, we are finishing part one today, but wanted to be able to hand this out to you because part of its design is for you guys to take it home uh, and to read the passage and to jot down some notes, answer some questions. It'll take you 15 minutes of your week, but it will, I think, radically change how you um, kind of are prepared for what happens on Sunday mornings. And so make sure you get that. If not, you can get it afterwards. You can also get it next week and until we run out. So, um, But we're going to be in part one, uh, page 83. Uh, if you have that here with you this morning. If not, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 56. So while you're turning uh, there, let me tell you a story. So uh, this Christmas, hope you guys had a great Christmas. Some people have been telling Merry Christmas this morning because I haven't seen them since, and they're like, "You're a little late." I know, but here's the deal: I just haven't seen everybody, so I still want to celebrate that because I want to tell everybody that. Um, but for our family, we got to go. My brother flew our family down. He was gracious enough to to bring us down to Colorado, uh, and so we went there. And while we were there, I've got a good buddy. If you don't know, we used to live in Boulder uh, for about six years, uh, many, many, many years ago. Uh, and so I still have some really good friends. Jeremy calls me and says, hey, how would you like to go to a Broncos game? I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. Some would say he's fortunate to have season tickets. Some would say fortunate should never be used with the word Broncos, but that's fine. <laughs> I was there to celebrate. I looked at the... Um I looked at the weather app and I thought, "Ooh, it's gonna be chilly." He goes, "Yeah." He said, "You want to bring a couple jackets because we're up there." And so uh, I grab my jackets. I grab a hoodie. Uh, I grab this jacket, you know, and I've got another jacket to go on top of it. And so we hike. I can't. can't, Like it's like the first time I put on a jacket. Seriously, what in the world is happening? There. Okay, got it. Yeah. And he's up on the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We. We, we went up and we've checked all the way up to the top. These are their seats. You can see this is what I This is what I love about sporting events is that you go and, and you are surrounded by a sea of whatever color it is. You go to NDSU, it's green and gold. You go to uh, MSUM or Concordia. You go to Vikings, you know, wherever it is, like you're going to be surrounded by the color of people that, that are wearing together in unity, in unison to say, this is the team that we are rooting for and anybody else is an outsider. And so we get there and so like I'm like bundled up and we get all the way to the top and we get down in our seats and before all the players even come out on the field and I turned to my buddy, I was like, man, Jeremy, I don't even know. Like, this is the ignorance of me. I didn't even look. Who are the Broncos playing today? He's like, oh, the Chargers. I'm like, oh, that's great. This is so good. And so I'm like watching and looking around, just taking in the experience and up come two Charger fans. And they start walking up the stairs and I looked at them and I was like, oh man, I wonder what it's like to be you. You are in a sea of orange. It didn't even click in my head. Some of you guys know where I'm going. Here's the deal. It took me about 10 minutes. I was really slow that day. I had a stomach bug. I had been just getting over it. I was really slow. I had watched them all the way up in their seats, and then the players come out. About 10 minutes later, it dawns on me. My senses are awakened, and I am become acutely aware of the fact because this is their color. It's the gold on the bottom, and so I looked at those people, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> and I began to cover myself, and I was like, it was like Adam and Eve in the garden, man. I was like, oh, no, like, 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 this doesn't even help. You just put, like, gold on top of gold, you know, like, it didn't even work, and so, like, here's the deal. I didn't say a single word about the Broncos. I didn't say anything about football. I just sat there really quietly, like because the guys that was next were really big, so it was more like this. And I just sat there until they went for a hot dog, and immediately I grabbed my other jacket, and I put that thing on as fast as I could, and I zipped it up, and all of a sudden, as soon as I wasn't gold and I was gray, I was like, go Broncos! <laughs> you see, this is the thing. As, uh, Brian talked about this this last week, as that in, in a culture that we live in today, Guys, as Christians, we will always be in the minority. The question is whether or not we own it or not. And so like it turned serious really quick because when I thought in that moment, I thought about how intrinsic that, that response was for me. I wasn't even cheering for the Chargers. I was cheering for the Broncos. But as soon as I became acutely aware of the fact that I looked like a Charger, I just kept my mouth shut. And I put that jacket on as quick as possible. And sometimes I think in life, that's what we do as Christians. Like we can wear that jacket and we can say proudly on Sunday mornings, I'm a Jesus follower. You get to work and we're like, Zip! and we put that gray right back on. I'm just going to blend right into whatever the, whatever the color needs to be. I'll be gray. I'll be right in the middle. And this is the world in which we live in. It will always be kind of cultural. The question is whether or not we own it. You see, fear is a powerful motivator, uh, and it's going to be a powerful motivator for us in this, in this text this morning. So I don't know if you guys remember where we're at in this, in this Mark chapter 6, verse 45. The context is, and I can't go all the way back to the beginning, but I'll give you a few, is that just a couple chapters ago, Jesus has sent the disciples out, right? They've been following him for three years already, and they follow, 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 and all of a sudden, Jesus is like, okay, this is my ministry, and this is my kingdom, but now it's your turn. And so he sends them out in twos and it doesn't tell us how they felt. It didn't tell them if they felt prepared or if they were emotionally high or whatever. They're like, let's go do it. Or let's like, oh man, I don't know what I'm doing. They go. And it's in this time that they come back. And right before they're about to report everything to Jesus, it's in this context that Mark records that John the Baptist is beheaded. And if you're a disciple and if you hear that news, you're like, Jesus, this is terrible timing. And if you're Jesus, you're like, no, it's perfect timing. Because you need to know. What it's like to live in a world where the association with me could lead to that. It's a big deal. And fear is a powerful thing. They come back, they begin to tell Jesus everything that they do. And we don't even know if they're like excited about it or whatnot, but they report everything that they do. Jesus, at the end of that, looks at them and says, Here's the deal you guys are exhausted. Come with me, let's go get some rest. And so they get on a boat and they begin to head to a desolate place. But here's the reality of Jesus' popularity. He is so stinking popular at this point that the crowd that he was just with were like, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't done. And they run around the lake like double time, triple time, like marathon speed to get to the spot where the boat lands. And they go pull up in the boat and they they, they, they moor into the shore. And it's like, people are like, surprise, it's us again. We just couldn't get enough of you. We know you couldn't get enough of us. So we're here again. And Jesus is like, okay, here we go. Teach, 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 teach teach all the way into the night until the point where they're all hungry. Their stomachs are probably growling. The disciples say, send them home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus like, nah, you do it. This is about your ministry now. It's not just my ministry. It's our ministry. You do it. And so they get some bread and loaves. And then Jesus performs this miracle and they send them out and they start to distribute. It's not just 5,000 people with women and children, everybody included. It's close to 15,000 people. And some people think that Jesus had a secret stash of food in a cave nearby which he'd been doing for 10 years Hey, Joe Schmoe, can you like go take that? I don't care. Just stick it sticking in that cave. I'm going to need it 10 years from now for 20,000 people. doesn't make sense. Jesus is a miracle worker. And so he like, sends them out, and they bring back these baskets full of bread and fish. And Jesus is like, hey, like, how many baskets are left? They're like 12. I'm like, whoa, what a coincidence. No, not a coincidence. One for each of you to remind you of who I am and what I can do. You want to keep safe here? Let me, take that, let me take that basket from you, Bartholomew. I'll sign that. Jesus, yeah, there you go. You take that to Peter's mother-in-law. She'll anagram it for you. Put it on a shelf. Remember, take this home. Remember how important this day is. The question is, this is the context, by the way. That feels like forever ago that we were in that passage, but where we pick up is where that left off. The disciples are exhausted. They've been on this trip and journeys for two weeks, month, who knows, and then Jesus is like, let's get away, and then they're busy, and then they try to get away again. It doesn't work. Here's the deal. Oh, man, you, you, look, you guys, you look at this story, and you, go, you think that the disciples would get it by now, but here's the question. What is it that the disciples really understand? what is it that the disciples really understand about Jesus? Is Jesus, you know, is he just like the the people from Nazareth who would say, oh, this is the son of the carpenter. That's who this is. This is Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter. Or are they saying, hey, this is Jesus. He's a healer. He's a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. He even brought somebody back from the dead. Like that little girl. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Like he's, but he's really just like 10 steps better than everybody else. Or is this Jesus, the son of God? Is this Jesus, part of the Trinity, divine, co-eternal, co-heir, all of those things? Is that who this is? And you look at the disciples, and you're like, what do you really understand at this point? News flash, by the end of this passage, you will find out that the disciples still don't understand. They don't get it. Like, who, who's Jesus? He's a healer. No, Jesus is the Son of God. And so here's my hope. is As we think about this, guys, these people have been following Jesus for three and a half years, three, over three years to this point, day in and day out, and they still don't get it. And for some of us here in this church, we've been following Jesus for a long time. I don't know if we all get it or not. Who is Jesus to you? And what role does he have in your life? Is he a teacher, or a healer, or a good guy? He's either the guy that we just talk about on Sunday mornings, or is he Jesus, the Son of God, the center of your life? It's a big question. It's a big difference. And so my hope as we jump back into 2024 and this morning and throughout the year as we continue to do this follow me thing that we begin to see the real Jesus and we have an open heart and not a hard heart to the real Jesus. Here we go. Let's dive in. Okay. We're Jesus on the mountain. Chapter six, verse 45. Here's what it says immediately you can circle it you can highlight it, you can underline it you can mark it you can do whatever you need to in your bible or in your companion guide because we've been tracking through the gospel of mark and we've seen how mark has used this word over and over and over it's his way of talking about the the urgency of the kingdom and how we respond It says, so immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd you're like okay so what's going on here why the urgency in this moment mark doesn't record it and if you don't know mark is is recording the words from peter that's his source and so it's excluded in this text, but in John chapter 6, which is the equivalent in John, here's what John tells us, is that in the moment when Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed the 15,000 people, it said that the people wanted to forcefully make him king. You see, something has shifted and changed in Jesus' ministry. It's not just that they're content. They're not content with the healings. They're not content with the great teaching. They're not content with whatever it is that they were content with before. Now they want him to sit on a political throne and to take control. And they would do anything they could, grab his hand, hoist him up, put, put him on their shoulders, whatever they need to, and march all the way down to Jerusalem from Galilee, stomp, 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 to make Jesus king. You see, something has shifted. By the way, if somebody were to take your hand and say, I'd like to make you king, you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay. Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh. That's not me. It's not that I'm not king. Oh, I'm king, he says, but this isn't the way that I want to be king. You see, to be the king in Jesus' kingdom is to defeat the one thing that we needed defeated, which was death. And so that would lead him as a king to a totally different type of throne. It would be a throne called the cross where he would die the Forgiveness of sins that we could be received as a gift by faith. That's the gospel story, and that's how Jesus would be king. You see, something has shifted in Jesus' ministry. This is a turning point, and he knows it. What's he gonna do in this moment? He does what he does oftentimes. He says, I need to pray. And guys, if this is an important part of Jesus' rhythm, how much more important it should be for you and I? Jesus was perfect, we're not, we should be praying all the time. And Jesus says, I need to pray. This is a big deal in this in this passage, when he says that he it said that he made them get into a boat, you're like, what in the world? Like, how does this? Like, he didn't ask them politely. Hey, I need you guys. Would you guys do that? He doesn't command them. It doesn't say that he just commanded them. It says that he made them. It means that he coerced them. I almost get this picture of him like like shoving Peter in a boat, and it's like whack a mole. Like he keeps popping up. He's like, no, get in the boat. And Peter's like, no way. We're not going to leave you. We can't leave you. Look at this crowd. And Jesus's like, get in the boat. I need to go pray. He's like, no, we can't do it. I don't know. Maybe somebody in this boat, whoever is the most astute fisherman, I don't know who it is, but I wonder if somebody was like in the moment, like, I think there's a storm coming. I ain't getting in that boat. Remember the last time we got in that boat? You know what happened? 15 foot waves. We almost drowned, and Jesus was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I ain't getting in that boat. I ain't getting in any boat without Jesus. I don't know. But Jesus has to coerce them. And finally, it's like he shoves them out into the water and they go their ways and there creates this separation. Look at verse 46. This is what it tells us. It says, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Mark doesn't give us a glimpse as to what Jesus is praying. Oh, how I wish I knew what he was praying in that moment. But we knew that we know that there's separation, because that next verse it says, and when evening came, which has got to be pretty late, because he taught well into the evening, past dinner time, and then he gets them on a boat. So darkness is here. It is set in. And it says, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And so you've got the disciples in this vulnerable position. You've got Jesus on the mountain praying. And there's this separation between the two. And this is how Mark then shifts. He brings us to help us see what's really going on in the boat. Look at verse 49. It said and went, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He keeps going, it says that he meant to pass them by, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. And they all saw him, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. Man, what a, what a bizarre story. We've heard this story since we were kids, and for some of you, that's second nature. You hear it, and maybe some of you, you're hearing that for the very first time. But it's crazy as you think about like the disciples out on the boat, and Jesus is up on the mountain. He's watching this whole thing. And so as you think about the disciples in that moment, as they're, as they're paddling, right, the sails are got to be down because the, sin, the wind is right in front of them, so it's not going to help so everybody, maybe there's one lazy guy that everybody's yelling at, pick up the oar, I don't know, but everybody's got an oar and they're paddling, paddling, paddling for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes, for an hour, your muscles begin to strain. Two hours go by, three hours, four hours go by. It's not until the, like, the fourth watch was between, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. that Jesus even comes to meet them. Think about that. The disciples have been where? They were out on their own on mission. They came to Jesus. He said, let's get some rest. They went somewhere, didn't get rest. They got exhausted even more. They taught through the night, and then they have to paddle a boat to 6 a.m. through the middle of the, through the, middle of the Sea of Galilee. You're exhausted. You're tired. And yet Jesus is watching this entire thing unfold. And if you're a disciple, and if you're sitting in the boat, as you can see the other side, the whole Sea of Galilee at its widest point is only eight miles wide. And so even if, like I drew this a little small, I should have drawn it bigger, but they are uh, down here, right? in, In Magdala. And their thought is to go all the way up here and to come all up where that northeast side in Bethsaida. That's where Jesus wants them to go. So it's not like they're coming all the way over to the other side. They're not crossing that eight-mile gap. They're just cutting the corner, and yet it's taking hours and hours and hours, and they aren't making it. And you begin to think, you know, as you see the other side and how oftentimes we feel this in life. Like, this is where I am. I'm in the middle of a storm. This is where I am, and that's that's where I want to be. And there's an unknown. I don't know how long it's going to take. God, how long do you have me in this storm? How long until you act? Like how much effort, how much strength physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually is it going to take before I ever get to that spot? But here's what I love about this moment is that the disciples are being obedient because Jesus said, I want you to go there, and to their credit, they don't give up. They fight and they struggle and they toil with their paddles through the night in the midst of their exhaustion. It would have been far easier to say, hey, you guys paddle forward. You guys paddle backwards. Let's turn this thing around and the wind will carry us right back to where we started. So easy. And yet they're being obedient. Guys, and here's what I would tell you this morning is that sometimes, not all the time, not always, I'm not saying that, but sometimes being in the storm is exactly where you're supposed to be they were being obedient to Jesus. And you're like, how in the world is that ever a good thing? Oh, just wait. It's coming. Wait for it, because Jesus is going to show up in a really cool, powerful way, right? Because what does he do? He walks on water. He comes out over that. Skeptics would say that Jesus was on a secret sandbar. That's baloney. I've been there. There's no sandbar. That's the same people who said he's got that stash of food. I believe in a God of miracles, this is the creator, right? He, can, he has the ability, and he walks on water out into this space. And what happens is he intends to pass them by, and yet the people in the boat are terrified. And you come back to how intrinsic this idea of fear is. You know, Jesus is going to pass them by, and they see him on that horizon in the midst of the mist and the storm and the waves, and they, and they are scared as any of us would be, they're terrified it comes back to the jacket. It just is so easy for fear to be a motivator inside of us. And yet what's going to unfold in this moment, we have to come back out of Mark and to take a look at the bigger picture and to look back into the Old Testament to understand what's really happening in this moment. But let's go there, okay? So here's the deal. The words pass by. Jesus wanted to pass by. It was his desire, right? He meant to pass them by. And you're like, what does that mean? Here's what some people would say. Jesus, that Jesus was Just gonna go surprise them. Like, how silly is that? Like, how insensitive would it be of Jesus as a rabbi to be like, I know they're exhausted, but I'm gonna sneak up behind them in the middle of a storm and (laughs) surprise. Some people think that he was just there to test their faith. Guys, maybe Jesus just walking along the sea, he's going to Bethsaida and they happen to, like accidentally happenstance leads them to the same place and just like, oh, look at you guys. Oh yeah, I forgot you're out here. Ah, that's not how it goes. Because what's happening in this moment is so much deeper and so much deeper into the whole story and it's called a theophany. You're like, what's a theophany? A theophany is when God reveals himself to people. You see, we go out back into the Old Testament story. You go to the story of Moses, if you remember, right? Like God's people been enslaved in Egypt, like way down over here, and God brings them out. He brings them through the Red Sea, and he parts the waters, and they, they walk through. And then as the Egyptians follow, the waters collapse, and Jesus defeats, or God defeats the enemy, right? He collapses and brings death to the enemy, and so they walk through his safety, and they get to this mountain called Mount Horeb, and you're like, what's that? That's Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments were. And God says, I want you to park it for a while. This is where I want you to be. And as a part of that, Moses, the leader, would go up onto the mountain and would talk with God over and over and over, would have conversations with God, which is just an incredible thing. And it's in the midst of this that humanity's darkest, like, core piece is just becomes apparent because Moses is up on the mountain. And what happens is that because Moses delayed, they know he's up there talking to God, but because he delayed, they're like, what do we do? Let's melt all of our gold and make making into a giant calf. That sounds like a good idea. Oh, terrible. In fact, it comes to the point where God says, here's the deal, guys, it's time for you to move on. I've got a promised land that I want you to go to, but it's time for you to go. Here's the the thing, though. I can't go with you anymore. I can't go with you because if I do, here's the problem. I'm just going to consume you because you are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) He's not wrong. Build a golden calf. While Moses is talking to God on the mountain, how much more stiff-necked can you be? God's like, I can't do it. I'm not going to go. Moses intercedes and... God chooses to go, which is an incredible moment. But it's in this that that Moses needs, he wants something, and he asks from God, and he pleads. He's like, I want to know the God that as you go before me, as you. I am the one who is leading these people, but I need you to show yourself to me so that I can trust and know that you are good and that I'm following you. God, would you please show me your glory? And God's like, okay, let's do it. Here's the thing. Um, We're going to have to hide you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put you in a hole in the mountain. And as you do it, you need to turn around because what's going to happen is as my glory passes by, if you look directly at my glory, you will be consumed. You cannot take, you cannot handle in your physical form, my God-like reality. Reality. This is who I am, my nature, my substance. You can't handle it. And so I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. In fact, as you go by, as I go by, I'm gonna to have to put my left hand out to cover you, to cover it, so that way you're not consumed. And it's through this process that Moses talks with God over and over that as he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining, and people look at Moses and they're like, man, your face is so white. Like they can't even look at him. Like, he can't even look at his face. So whenever he'd come back to people, he had to put a veil down over his face just so people could talk to him. They'd go back up to God, and he would unveil. It's an incredible story. But when Jesus says he wants to pass them by, it's the same thing. He's revealing this to them. He's saying, what God, what Yahweh did for Moses is what I'm going to do for you. He says that he meant to pass them by. It means that this was his wish. This was his desire. It wasn't that he was aloof. It wasn't that he wanted to surprise them. It wasn't that he was testing their faith. It was like he wanted to intersect them in their boat in the middle of a storm so that he could reveal his glory. That was the moment. That was the Jesus thing. By the way, as a part of it, as a part of this whole Moses story, this theophany, as God reveals himself to Moses, God says, here's the deal, like, here's my personal name, let me just share that with you, right, which makes sense, because for us, we use the word God so often, we're like, God, 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 and we don't really think about a whole lot, in fact, for so many people, we take it in vain, and there's, there's not sacredness, there's not holiness, there's not benevolence to this, and it's like, we don't, we don't look at this, and we go, oh, man, this is incredible, Some people refuse to even say the name because it's too majestic. It's too pure, right? We don't want to defile it. God says, my name, you can know it. It's Y-H-W-H. Hebrew didn't have vowels. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, comes from the word to exist, says I am. That's my name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will do what I will do. I will love those whom I will love. I will have mercy on those whom I have have mercy. This is who I am. This is my existence. And so for us, as we look at God, if we were just to stop and pause, as we think about this moment, this theophany moment between Moses and, and God, and yet Jesus with the disciples, we were just to pause and say, hey, what's your theology here? What is it that you know to be true about God's character? What is it that you know about his existence? Some people would say, man, there's no one like our God. And we would applaud. We're like, God is so great. But here's the question what is he really like? What is it that he was really like? And so I know that some of you guys have been eyeing this, and you're like, wow, that's a lot of spots. Okay, here's the deal. It's going to go pretty quick, but I want to give you just a snapshot as we continue to pull just out of Mark for a second, as we think into this theophany between God and Moses, as we look at Yahweh's character revealed throughout the Bible, here are some of the things that you need to know, okay? And and you can like totally skip over this for a second, but this is super important. God is is described as holy, which means that he is set apart, These are his moral attributes. He is is pure. He is undefiled from anything that is bad or wrong. And so therefore, he is holy. He's set apart. He's also righteous. I'll just use right, which means that he's always in the right. He's never in the wrong. For you and I, for how much of life and how much of our day are we discerning between right and wrong? That's not a problem with God because he's like, I'm all right. I'm all right and I'm always right. Oh, by the way, God, Yahweh, is also good. It's the same thing for us again. We're constantly discerning between good and bad in life. And this is what we know to be true because inside of us at our deepest our core is bad, right? And so we're constantly in this tension, but for God, he is all good. We talk about love, right? This is, the, this is the motivator in John three sixteen when God says, I love the world so much, I would send my son to die. Like, this is, his, this is his care for his people. This is a motivator for him, but how much he loves them, right? Oh, and by the way, it's also that he's gracious. Because at the end of this, as a moral attribute. You might look at this and, well, God demands perfection. Well, he does, but oh, but by the way, he also doesn't expect you to be perfect. Because he can do that for you. That's the gospel story. And you look at this, and then we look at the moral attributes of God, and these are oftentimes some of the ones that we talk about most, and that those are prevalent, and those are good in our story. Here's some some of the ones that we never really talk about. When was the last time you used the word aseity? That's supposed to be an I. When was the last time you used that word? Aseity is this. It just means that everything that God has and what he needs to exist comes from himself. You and I, we need food, we need water, right? We need air to breathe. Those are all external things. God's like, my existence is built on nothing else other than myself. Isn't like crazy? That's a totally different reality. It's, it's awe-inspiring. What about this? His infinite, his infinity. And you're like, well, what does that mean? It means that he is unbounded. It means really this, that he is limitless. And so for some of you out there who are like, man, like, could God ever love me to the degree that I need to be loved? You attach these two together and you go, man, God will never run out of that love. That's an incredible thing. He will never not be right. He'll never not run out of it, right? Like all of a sudden we begin to see the depth of God in this. How about immensity? Immensity is in part how we talk about his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere because he is so large. He is immense. This is very different than pantheism, which would say that God is that tree or in that tree. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that God is in the tree, but he's saying that he can exist with that tree because of his immensity. He can be everywhere, right? How about this one? Is immutability. Another big word. And you're like, that just means that he can't change. You see, for you and I, we're constantly growing or, or depreciating in some way, shape, or form, or breaking down. We're growing or, or, or breaking down. And for God, he is unchanging in those things. He is like, there's a constancy to God in which he is not getting better or worse all the time. And then for us, this last one, Right, this is always one that boggles people is the eternity, the eternal. Is that no beginning, no end? And see, the more you think about these things, the more it either inspires questions, which is good, go wrestle with these more, but it also inspires awe. This is God, this is what he is like. You see, then we come back over to these, and these are the ones that we oftentimes focus on. So you got these, the moral qualities, these that we don't talk about a whole lot, and then you got these that everybody wants to talk about. He's omnipotent. That means he has all power. And you're like, what is God going to do with all power? Like, how, how is it? Can I trust a God who has all power? That comes closely with this one. Right? right? He is sovereign. And sovereignty is not about how much power he has, but it's about how he chooses to use that power. How does he work within the world? Does he use this in a positive way, bad way, or how does he use that? Some people look at God as a sovereign God like he's just controlling everything. You see, it it changes how we think about those things. Another one is, is omniscient. Like what good is all power without all knowledge? Another one is wisdom, right? It's not just that he has all knowledge, it's that he knows how to put all of that knowledge together in a way that capitalizes all of his power so that he can use his sovereignty to work good within the world. And the last one is this, unity. It's just the idea that God is one and there is no one like him. He is unique in all these things. You see, what this does is that it forces us, because I think in so many times, you got to think about the disciples in the boat and throughout Scripture and throughout your lives, how many times do we come to God and we're like this, God, I have all of these questions about who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing things in the world. Like, how is it that these things can be true? Here's how I would tell this. This is how I would tell you guys. God is perfect. We talk about perfect. Perfect isn't on this list. Here's what I would say. God is perfect in this way, that every single one of these attributes is always in perfect alignment with another. So how God uses his all power, you don't have to worry about it. Why? Because he's all good. There is no bad. He's always right. Right? You don't have to worry about those things because, because all of those things are perfectly working in symmetry always within his character. And it makes sense that when God says, Here's the thing, you want to know my name, I am who I am. Oh, that's cool. I am who I am. That's the, that's, the, that's the theophany between God and Moses. But here's the thing. When the disciples see Jesus, obviously they're afraid. But here's what I love about Jesus and his response in this moment. In verse 50, it says, After they were terrified, but immediately. Here's that, that word again. Circle, highlight, underline, mark it up. Do whatever you need. Immediately, Jesus responds to their fear. And he says, spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And you're like, man, how encouraging is that, that Jesus would come down from the mountain to meet me in the middle of that moment to encourage me. Oh, guys, it's far deeper than that. That's true, and I hope that you'd be encouraged. And by the way, memorize that line. You're going through a storm right now. Memorize those words and repeat them. Meditate, turn to those over and over and over. Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid, but it's so much deeper because when Jesus says, it is I, in the Greek, those words, ego, a me, says this, I am. I am. You see, there's a whole bunch of different viewpoints about how that actually works, but when Jesus is right here in the middle of this storm as he meets the disciples in the boat and he says, ego, a me, he attaches himself into this reality take heart. I know that you have fear. Fear has no place in the presence of the divine. Take heart. I am. This is me. This is me. Take heart. Do not be afraid. All of a sudden, you go, wow, that's pretty incredible as I begin to think about who Jesus is actually revealing himself to be. This is where we come to the end of this as Jesus is gonna get in this boat. Look at verse 51. It says, and he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. It's about to shift here in a moment, but let me tell you this. Many years ago, I was on a trip with some students, and we went down to Utah, and uh, we were doing a houseboat trip, about 100 students and 25 leaders. And so we took, rented four houseboats, and we were shuttling kids out to the spot. I was in charge. I wanted to make sure all of our leaders and everybody got there. And so I took the very last houseboat. I gathered the few remaining leaders, and we began the trek. It's like a two-hour trek just to get the houseboat out to where we were going to camp. On the water. And so we start going, and and the wind is so bad that it's like three foot waves. It's not 15 foot waves like the the ones that the disciples. Experienced that first time, but three-foot waves, and they were just pushing and challenging that big, monstrous thing of a boat, and it was hard to steer and hard to turn, but man, we were excited. We're like, here we go. Here comes the trip. This is going to be great. We're starting our week adventure. Up comes Jarrett, one of my leaders. He sits up in the front. He kicks his, his legs up on the top. He puts on his special cowboy hat with a straw coming about his mouth, and I was like, who are you? This is a six-foot-five, 260-pound baseball player. He's just, just thrilling in the moment until a wind gust came and takes his cowboy hat and off the boat without a moment. I kid you not, zero hesitation. As soon as he realized his hat was gone, he was gone. He jumped. He ran to the side of the boat and took all of things. Out into the water into three foot waves and he swam and swam. I didn't even have time to react. He swam and swam, but the current kept pushing his hat further away and it was like one of those moments where it's like you see it, but it keeps getting further away. And eventually he got to his hat. It was like a 10-minute swim. Six foot five, two sixty. He's a big dude. The thing about all that muscle and strength is that when you get tired, you become a dead weight. I did everything I could to steer the boat back towards him, but the wind wouldn't let me. I couldn't do it without hitting him or hurting him. And so we watched and hoped that he would start to swim back. By that point, he was so far away, all I could see was him doggy, doggy paddling doggy paddle and doggy paddle some more the waves started going up and I saw his head going up less and less in the water until the moment when I remember his head popped up after it hadn't been popped up in a while and he choked out a whole bunch of water and I without thinking I sprinted to the back of the houseboat I grabbed a life vest I grabbed one for him and I dove into that water And I swam as hard as I could swim here was the difference I had a life preserver And I got to Jarrett in the water, and I gave him that life vest. And in that moment, I saw all the hope flood back into his eyes because it was just about time. It's a terrifying moment. Here's the thing. As soon as the I am gets into the boat, what happens? It's restored. It's this incredible moment As Jesus enters into this boat, and yet here's what's so baffling, here's how this finishes in verse 52. I told you this, spoiler alert, at the beginning of of the sermon, it says, for they did not understand about the loaves. He's even connecting it to the story before and says, but their hearts were hardened. Like, how is it that the disciples who've been following Jesus day in and day out for three and a half years still don't get who Jesus really is? Guys, we've been in this series in Mark, not three years. You guys might send me some emails if we're in it for three years. But for 17 weeks, we've been following the footsteps of Jesus. Can I show you a few of those footsteps really quick? Footstep number one, back at the very beginning of Mark, Jesus is baptized. Where is he baptized? In the Jordan River, which is right where the people crossed into the promised land. And then he enters led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. From there, he begins to preach and teach about the kingdom of God. It's reminiscent of the promised land, God as ruler, the king of a new land, right? Jesus' kingdom. The next one is this. It talks about forgiveness, right? He goes and he heals the paralytic, but instead of healing him first, he forgives him. And the Pharisees, they're astounded. No way! No one can forgive sins but God alone! Jesus is like, I know. I know how it works. He offers forgiveness. Next one, this, right? He creates bread. Like, what did they eat in the, in the wilderness? Over and over and over and over. Manna. And Jesus is like, oh, I know. By the way, I just created it. I can do that. That's who I am. I created it. By the way, I can also do this. I went up on a mountain to pray. It's just like the story, just like Moses in the story. And then when I came down the mountain, you guys crossed through water, through the Red Sea. Guess what? I walk on water. And then you get to the end. And there's this mind blowing reality. He says, I am. I am. I am who I am. You see, every step of the way through Mark, Jesus has been revealing to his disciples over and over and over I'm not just a good teacher. I am not just a prophet. I am not who you think I am. I am the Son of God. That's who I am. And if you understand me, you understand this reality. And if you invite me into your life, that's just a little bit about what you get. Do you see it? You know, several weeks I was at Caribou, and I walked outside and I saw this. They'd done some renovations, and so people, as they kind of came into the store, but look what it left on the way out, footprints. Footprints. This step-by-step over and over and over. Guys, here's the reality. You guys are already going places. Why not do it with Jesus' intentionality? Because Jesus says this, follow me and I'll show you how to love your neighbor. Follow me, I'll show you how to, to make an impact at your workplace. You follow me to your university or school. Follow me to the grocery store. Follow me to your kid's hockey game. Follow me wherever I go, wherever you go. Do you understand who I am? Do you understand that I am Jesus, the son of God? Guys, some people think that this stuff is made up. You can't make this stuff up. Humanity is not smart enough to weave together all of these things. This is too elaborate, too beautiful, and too perfect to not be real. This is so much more than religion. This is about a theophany, as Jesus invites them to see him in a new way for who he really is. Guys, a theophany should bring an epiphany. Oh, you're Jesus. You're not just Jesus, you're Jesus. That's a whole new reality for how you and I experience him on a day-to-day basis. Guys, reaching out to other people and following in his footsteps, that's incredibly important. But can I just encourage you and tell you that when you do those things, here's the thing. I think Jesus will reveal himself to you. I think that you'll actually get to see and experience his glory in ways if you don't. There is so much goodness in following Jesus. But the reality is, is that sometimes being in the storm is right where we're supposed to be. And I know that for some of you guys this morning, that's deeply personal. And that you guys are going through a really hard time. Notice I said sometimes. I don't mean always. Sometimes. It's right where you need to be. It's deeply personal. And guys, just because we trust Jesus in those moments doesn't make it any easier or any less hard. It's still hard. But it can still be the spot where Jesus wants to reveal his glory to you. And I think that together... We're also in a storm because you look at the world in which we live in and we go, man, there's no way. As I think about that jacket and as I think about a sea of whatever color stands for what culture is, we are a minority in a vastly changing world. We are in the midst of a storm. The question is whether or not we have an open heart or a hard heart. You see, an open heart acknowledges and sees the real Jesus and really follows Jesus despite the fear. You see, and a hard heart doesn't. It refuses to do those things. Guys, here's my encouragement to you as we end. Don't miss the glory of Jesus. Let God, let Jesus show you how great he really is. And as you look at these things and go, man, I still don't remember what all those are. Jesus says, man, when you invite me into your life, this is just some of what you're going to get. It's an incredible it's a beautiful thing to enter into a following relationship with Jesus. Guys, it's 2024. This is a brand new year. My question is, with everything else that you're setting, what role does Jesus have in your life? We start part 2 next week where does Jesus fit? Let me give you a couple of quick things because we want to make sure that at the end or the start of each each next piece that we give you something to get connected first thing is this if you want to get trained if you go man i want to know how to how to better um, witness to my co-workers. We've got evangelism relationship. That's one of our key and primary things that we're going to use to coach you and help you be able to do that. Sign up for that. Great stuff. Discover you. Figure out how God has wired you and gifted you to make an impact in this world. So that's the first thing. Get trained. Second one is this. Join a group. Cave Table Road at the center of the cave and in the, in the road is a table that says we're going to do life together. There's the circle of people that I'm going to invite into holding me accountable as I struggle well with life but as I seek to make an impact in the kingdom so join a group if you're not in one that's so important the last one is this is become a volunteer guys we are in dire need of more volunteers at the beginning of this year kids ministry always needs more volunteers we need people who are willing to be the footprints in front of those little kid footprints at caribou coffee that say follow me as i follow christ we need you you're primed some of you are primed in position to do that we need you Hospitality, we need you. Technology, we need you. There's a lot of opportunities in 2024 to get connected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, I didn't know that we are, many of us this morning are personally in the midst of a storm. That there are things going on in our life that, man, we just go, man, I am here, but I wish that I was there. And there is a challenge and a hurt and a need for Jesus to walk across that water to meet us at that point and to say, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Yeah, we need that from you this morning as individuals. We need it collectively in the world in which we live in. We live in a world with a sea of color that we would be the people who with courageous hearts, despite the fact that we don't look or talk or act like everybody else, that we wouldn't be the people who zip up the gray jacket to say, I'm gonna just enter into the gray areas in life and I will be unnoticed and unseen and when I come to church, I'll pull it back off, but that we would be a people who boldly raise our hands and say, it's okay, Jesus, I will follow you. I will make you the center of my life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. I revel in that. I revel in your goodness, Jesus, as you reveal yourself to us. May we fall deeper in love with you and follow you where you go. In your name we pray. Amen.